Well, we're going to uh, look tonight together at um, John chapter 8, and we'll look at verse 12, where Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. It's a pretty familiar uh, text, isn't it, really? We have uh, known it and uh, spoken it, and I don't know, um, I'm trying to think, I don't think I've ever preached on it before, and um, uh, I can't even think, to be honest, of actually listening to somebody preaching on it, even though it's one of those famous verses, you know, it's one of the, one of the I am's in uh, John's gospel, you know, it's the second I am that you find here mentioned where Jesus describes himself in this particular way and uh, use this uh, unique expression about himself where he describes himself as being the I am. And uh, in this particular chapter, in fact, that uh, he mentions it time and time again, in actual fact, he comes back to it and uh, he tells these people about uh, uh, that he is going to be known to be the I am after he has been lifted up. There in verse 29 he says, and he said, and he, he who sent me is with me, the Father who has left me uh, alone, and I am always with him. Uh, but he goes on to say, I'm just trying to find that verse, now. that's it, verse 28 instead of 29, sorry. And uh, Jesus said to them, uh, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, although it is actually translated, I am, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And he goes on a little later to, to speak about uh, Abraham as well. And uh, in verse 58, for example, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And uh, it was this uh, wonderful title that was given to God, I am that I am in the Old Testament. And uh, it is a description. And for Jesus to apply it to himself was a major claim to his own divine title and his own divine nature. And uh, when he says, and he starts speaking like this, that I am the light of the world, you know, it's almost as if you're getting them to focus and to concentrate upon him. And one of the interesting things is about the, these chapters, in actual fact, chapter 7 and chapter 8, if you read through these two chapters, what you find in chapter 7, that you've got this controversial Jesus who has suddenly appeared and uh, he gets into conflict with uh, the leaders of the day at that particular time. They were people who didn't know quite what to make of Jesus. They had heard about his miracles. They had heard him speaking and preaching. And yet for all of that, the religious leaders of the day rejected who Jesus was. And yet for the people themselves, as they were considering and looking at Jesus... They were looking at him and they were thinking, well, what kind of person is this? And then in verse 12 of uh, chapter 7, it says like this, And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, he is good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. But you get this situation where different people looking at Jesus were coming to various conclusions with regards to Jesus. And even the religious leaders, if I was to take you through this chapter 7, what you find is that the religious leaders of the day, they, they ask the question, you know, have any of the leaders, have any of the religious leaders believed in him? And so they send people to him to, as it were, take Jesus 
to bring him before the religious leaders of the day. But yet, when the, the soldiers come to Jesus, and they're listening to Jesus speaking, and as Jesus is speaking to these particular people, what you find is that they come to the conclusion they can't take Jesus. How could they take this person? And when they come back to the religious leaders of the day, these people, they, they say, why haven't you brought him? In verse 45, why have you not brought him to us? Why haven't you brought him? We sent you out to bring this man to us. And the officers answered, no man ever spoke like this man. There was something so unique about Jesus, you see, something that struck the minds and thoughts with anybody that looked at him and listened to him they were suddenly struck by the uniqueness of this particular man. No man ever spoke like this man. And even those who were sent to capture Jesus and to take Jesus came to realize that he was a very, very special person. And so what you find is that here is Jesus speaking to these people. And it's in the context of this controversial Jesus that you have him speaking and declaring to them that I am the light of this world. And here is the person who has come really to remove, as it were, all confusion concerning who he is. He wants people to realize, to be captivated by that sense of the reality of who Jesus is. And he is very, very special in this particular way. And here you get Jesus declaring himself to be the light of this world. And it is a, a very, very bold claim, isn't it? Because what you find is that time and time again, the, you know, in lots and lots of different religions, you get this situation where there is this declaration of light and darkness, as it were, by way of comparison. And, and even here, you get Jesus himself making the comparison between light and darkness, there's this that goes on and through this particular chapter where you get Jesus as we're describing himself and yet what you find is the confusion about who Jesus is comes out in this particular chapter. You get their minds when you're reeling at what Jesus is saying and he makes a comparison between their views and his own views and what they think and where he is and where he stands. And time and time again, Jesus says, I am the light of this world. And you know the purpose of light is to remove darkness. And this is where the comparison is made here. He wants to show that he has come into the world and he is the light of the world. He wants to give light and illumination to people. He doesn't want people, as it were, to live in darkness. But he has come, as it were, to remove the darkness from their minds and from their understanding, to give them that light of the knowledge of the truth, that God is who he is, that God is the creator of all this universe, and, that, and he wants to become as the, the very revelation of who God is. And he says, I am the light of this world. It's an interesting statement, you see, because what you find with Jesus is that there was this prediction in the Old Testament concerning Jesus. And the prediction in the Old Testament concerning Jesus was this, that Jesus would come as a light, not only to the Jews, but he would come as a light to the Gentiles as well. In Isaiah, for example, 49, where 
you've got throughout Isaiah the writer there and the prophet as he speaks. He, he's always got this picture in the background there and it comes out time and time again in various parts of the book of Isaiah about the servant, this messianic servant who was to come. But in chapter 49 and verse 6, there's got this description of the servant of the Lord. And yet in verse 6 it says like this, he says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations and my salvation may reach out to the end of the earth. In other words, he wasn't going to be confined. He wasn't going to be restricted to becoming a light to the, Gen uh, to the Jews. But he was going to extend this light, this universal light, which was going to shine out, not just to the Jews and become, as it were, kept in stock in, in the Jewish nation. But this salvation, he says, is going to extend to the ends of the earth. I'm going to be a light, he says, to the nations, to all peoples. And so when Jesus is saying to these people, I am the light of the world, he doesn't want to, as it were, confine himself to these people, to the Jewish nation. But what he does want to do is he wants to, as it were, convey that he has come to give light and knowledge and understanding to all peoples, in all nations, in all parts of the world. And his salvation was not going to be restricted, as it were, to the Jews, but the salvation was to extend to all nations, to the Gentiles as well. And so here you have this light that is shining out in this particular world. And Jesus is saying, look, I have come. And even in chapter 9 and verse 5, he says it again, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. He just wants people to grasp this idea to give light. But when you think about it for a moment, isn't it? If you read through, especially John's gospel and John's letters, what you find there is always this um, comparison made between light and darkness and where people stand, they're either in the light or they're in the darkness. And it's not only a religious phenomenon, as it were, you know, that it's confined and conceived, as it were, just in religions. But it's a philosophical concept as well about light and darkness, you know, the influence of being controlled in this world. There's this principle and this concept, wasn't there, at one time, you know, where people used to speak of dualism and, you know, you'd have light and darkness and the conflict between the two. And it, it comes out in cinemas, doesn't it? In pictures and films that you might have seen, you know. You think of the Lord of the Rings, you know. I always think of the Lord of the Rings and I remember, uh, you know, the Hobbit. He was, he was there guarding himself and uh, the, the orcs were walking past and they were all coming, lining up behind me. And as I was reading this, I was thinking to myself, wasn't it reminiscent, you know, of the jackpots of uh, Hitler's troops, all marching, all marching, row after row after row, you know. And, you know, there was this conflict, wasn't there? You know, the conflict of light and darkness, you know. And the problem was to, you know, be possessed by darkness. And, uh, you know, the power of the ring was this, wasn't it? to take control in such a way that that person was absorbed by the darkness, overcome by the power of the ring because of the influence that the ring had, and having to fight against it. You, know, you think of Star Wars as well, isn't it? You know, 
You always think these are almost like uh, children's films. And <laughs> but Star Wars, you know, you think of Star Wars for a moment, isn't it? You know? And there's always this conflict, isn't there? You know, of not being overcome, you know? But the power be with you, you know? What? Here was the conflict of light and darkness. Not allowing the darkness, as it were, to take possession of the soul. But that the light would, as it were, keep it at bay. And there was this conflict and this fight and this struggle within people. And it's exactly the same here, isn't it? Where Jesus is talking, I am the light of this world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. The problem is that this is the state and this is the condition of the world at large. That people are walking in darkness. They are completely ignorant of who Jesus is. Completely ignorant of who God is. When it says about Jesus, he came into the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. They were completely ignorant of who Jesus was. But Jesus says his followers would not walk in darkness, but would have the light of life. In other words, they wouldn't live in darkness. They wouldn't live under the power and influence of darkness and under the power and influence of sin. But these people would come to a true understanding of who Jesus is. It used to be common at one time for people to say, when you were converted, I've seen the light. It don't, people don't use that expression anymore, do they, about conversion? You know, but it was always a wonderful and powerful expression, you know. And people used to say sarcastically sometimes, isn't it? Oh, you know, he, he's seen the light, you know. You know, you had, you had that expression said about you? Oh, he's seen the light, you know. Oh, he's a bit, you know, he's gone off on a tangent, as it were, you know, and he's, he's seen the light, you know. Uh, I used to have people tell me that, you know, you smoked too much dope and, you, you know, went off on a tangent and, you know, just too much fuel and, and all of this, you know. But it was always an expression to see the light. And I'm going to tell a story about somebody that John knows and uh, we were friendly with at the time. guy used to come and uh, buy drugs of me at one time and uh, by the name of Peter Davis. And uh, I've told you this story before, but it's a long time ago and you probably won't remember and you might be a different congregation anyway. But, uh, and I remember I'd been converted now about six months. I was living back home and living in a commune where I was converted. And then I went back home to live and went back to work. And, uh, and then I was in the, in the house one day and uh, my mother comes and she said, oh, I'll send me at the door for you. I said, oh, right, okay. So I went out and here was this guy standing on the door, face beaming, you know, face beaming. I've seen the light. <laughs> you know? and, he, uh, and there was Peter standing there. And he knew that I'd been converted, you see, some time previously. And he had interesting connections in his family and background. And he had come to tell me that he had seen light. It was self-evident, you know. You only had to look at the guy. You know what I mean? He was elated. He was up almost, I was going to say, almost in the seventh heaven, but it wasn't like that, was it? But he was elevated and he was emotional about it. Seeing the light, he says. What had happened? Something dramatic had happened. He'd come to realize who Jesus is. And in the realization of that, had come to confess his sin and believe in Jesus. And he was converted. And he wanted to come and tell me that he had been saved. Paul, in actual fact, when uh, he wants to describe people's 
condition and situation when he was writing to the church in Ephesus, what does he say to them? He says like this to them, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk in the rest of the uh, walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. You see, here's the, 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 the contrast again, isn't it? You know, here's the Gentiles, they're walking in this particular direction, they, you know, their lifestyle and their condition is this. And he says they walk in the futility of their minds. Their understanding is darkened. They're alienated from the life of the God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. Now, that is man's natural state and condition until the light shines. And the purpose and the reason why the light shines is that it comes to dispel the darkness. Or if you think of Peter, for example, you know, Peter, when he's writing to his first letter, you know, he's writing to churches in Asia Minor, and he gives a whole catalogue of things about the Jewish nation, and what he, what he has done is he, he takes all the things that are said about the Jews in the Old Testament, and he applies them to Christians in the New Testament. And then he says to them, these, these particular people, he says about him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He said, what has happened? He said, well, this is what has happened. God has summoned you. He says, here you were at one time. You were walking in this world. He says, you were going in a certain direction. Your life was, as it were, geared and controlled by darkness. You didn't know where you were going. You didn't know what you were doing. You didn't have any purpose or goals. And then all of a sudden, God comes. And God calls you. You hear the voice of Jesus say, come unto me and live. All of a sudden something is happening, radically happening in your soul, whereby you never thought about this before, and all of a sudden that God becomes a reality. And this God calls you out of darkness. Suddenly you come to realize there is a maker, there is a creator, there is some sense to this world in which we live. It's not all chaos. But here we have this God who is in control. And all of a sudden, you come to realize that this God has sent his son to the world to die for sinners. He's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Light has shone. The mind is illuminated. You have an understanding now of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and what Jesus is going to do. Suddenly everything has changed. <coughs> the whole context of your life, the whole order that you had lived in at one time in darkness has now been revolutionized and you've been changed. He called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And you know the path that we take, isn't it? You see what Jesus says here, those who you know, follow me shall not walk in darkness. In other words, they don't know, it's not that they don't know where they're going. They've got a path and they've got a route and they've got one who has gone before them. And they're following after Jesus. They become his followers. They know the path that he has taken and they know the way to glory. And they're following hard after him. Well, the wonderful thing about the Christian life is this, isn't it? That as you're journeying along, things are getting better and clearer. I'm not saying the path is easy. 
In actual fact, Jesus himself says, isn't it, you know, the road that leads to life, what is, is difficult, it's hard, it's not easy to be follower of Jesus. But the whole wonder of it is that as you're journeying on, and as you're getting closer and closer to the goal that God has set you, and there you see the, the very gates of heaven before you as life is coming to an end, and you're looking forward in anticipation, and you're realizing that celestial city that God has planned, that city which has foundations, whose builder is God, that is the place that we are heading to. And as you are following Jesus, the path becomes clearer. The darkness, says John, isn't it, is being dispersed and the true light is shining. And all of a sudden you know, yes, I know where I'm going. I've got a clear light before me. The light of this world is on that path and going before me. And I know where I'm heading to. It's been common, isn't it, over the years to say like this, that all religions lead to God. All religions lead to God. What a fallacy, you know. You know, they say, well, take a picture of a, a mountain, isn't it? God is on the top, and we're on the bottom. And we're all going up different paths, but ultimately we're going to come to the top of the mountain. Well, what if you're trying to get up to any darkness, then? What if it's pitch black? I used to live in a commune on top of a mountain or a farm. And I remember going out one night, and we went down to the local pub, and came out of the local pub, and we wanted to walk back home, walking uphill. And I can tell you this, you could not see anything. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. There was, no, there was no moon there. There was no stars there. It was dark, it was cloudy, it was pitch black. And you could put your hand there, and you couldn't see a thing. And so you were trundling along like this, trying to feel your way up this road, going up the mountain. But you couldn't see a thing. But the whole point is this, you see. But what have you found, you see, that there was one path that had lights on it? Of all the paths that are there, there is one path that has got lights. Now, that changes the equation, doesn't it, altogether? You know, all the other paths are all in darkness. It's almost, you could say, that on this side of the mountain, they're all in darkness. You go on the other side, and then there's a path that's there with light going all the way up. And it's like that when you think of other religions. They're all in darkness. They're all, as it were, trying to feel and scramble around looking for God. But the thing about the Christian faith is this. There is not scrambling around and looking for God. It's God who has come and taken hold upon you. He who called you out of darkness brought you into his marvelous light. You see, the path gets clearer as you're going along. There's a wonderful verse in the book of Proverbs, and I'll find it for you now in a second when I flip my Bible open. And it's chapter 4, or the fourth proverb, verse 18. And it says like this, But the path of the just is like the shining sun, that shines ever brighter unto the perfect day. The way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. See, the con contrast is there right through the Bible, right? And you, you have this situation, isn't it? You're people in the world, they don't know where they're going. 
It's a sad situation. But when Jesus comes, he says, I am the light of the world. All of a sudden, the brightness and the glory that shines from Jesus shines out, shines out. You see, the interesting factor here is this, that the time when Jesus was speaking to them, if you look through these particular chapters, it was the actual Feast of Tabernacles. There were seven feasts that were given to us in Leviticus chapter 23, and this is the last of the feasts. There were seven. Three very prominent ones. One was the Passover, the other was the Feast of Weeks, and this was the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths, or sometimes it was called the Feast of Ingathering. I'll come to that in a moment, but the whole point about it is, I've always fancied preaching on them, right? <laughs> because we can see their fulfillment in the New Testament. One is, you'll know definitely, you know, the, the, the Passover one, isn't it? Where Jesus is described as being the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world, right? So you've got this picture of Jesus as being the Lamb, the sacrificial Lamb. Here he is, the Passover Lamb. He's described like that by Paul in 1 Corinthians. And what you find is that here he is, he is the Lamb of God. And then you've got this Feast of Weeks, which was 50 days after the Passover, which we would describe today as being Pentecost, the time of the coming of the Spirit of God. It was that preparation, as it were, for a harvest that was yet to come. It was the beginning, as it were, of taking, gathering fruits together. They were having, as it were, the preparation for a future harvest that was going to be achieved. But the interesting thing about the Feast of Tabernacles is, you see, that it hasn't yet been fulfilled. You read through the New Testament, you don't find it. So, so what is the purpose and the significance of the Feast of Tabernacles? You see, it was the Feast of Booths. What they used to do is that they used to, for seven days, they would take leaves and branches and things, and they would make like a tent, and they would go and live in it for seven days. It was a reminder to them that they were people who had been brought out of captivity there in Egypt, and they had lived in the wilderness. And they would live there in those booths for seven days. And then, on the last day, there would be a special, special day. And this is what is mentioned here. I'll come back to that. But because it was called the Feast of Ingathering, it's interesting, you see, with the Apostle Paul, that he, in 2 Corinthians, he chapter 2 and verse 1, he, he speaks about our gathering together unto Christ. You know, that we are going to be taken, to, taken into eternal habitations. We are going to be brought into that eternal place of glory. And I would suggest to you that that is the significance of this. This feast of tabernacles this Feast of Booths or this ingathering, it was the full harvest. It was the time when all the crops had gathered, been gathered together to the ingathering. And it's like that. How many times do you read parables where Jesus uses the example of the harvest? The angels being sent out from the harvest time has come to gather together all his people. The earth is gathering of his people. And this is what you see here. When Jesus uses the term, you know, about him being the light of this world, 
It's in the context of what is happening. And what is happening is that here was the Feast of Ingathering. It was the last day. And you see that there in verses 37 and 38, you see. Well, you get the picture that is presented. Sorry, I'm in the wrong place again, aren't I? The um, picture that is being presented to us about the gathering in of, of God's people. Let me just find this for a second. Anybody can see it for me? I'm just trying to find that verse where it talks about the drinking of the water. And I don't even know if I'm in the right chapter. Here I am. Here is the picture that is being presented where Jesus wants to speak about them and he's talking about it being the last day or the, the final day of the feast. And you know the picture that is presented here is one whereby he speaks about them gathering water, you know, about having water brought into their souls. It was something that was going to take place for them at this particular time. And what used to happen was that they would come down to the pool of Siloam. And as they came down to the pool of Siloam, they would take out an urn of water. They would pick up an urn of water. And when they used to take this, they would carry the water, this water in this urn, and they would make a troop all the way up to the temple. And they would come into the temple, and when they had come into the temple, they would pour this urn of water over the altar. But within the temple precinct, what you had was that you had lots and lots of chandeliers. And the chandeliers were there to give this brilliant light. They would light up this inner space within the temple. And it's in that context that Jesus is saying that I am the light of the world. He wanted to show these particular people that what had happened was something there that there was light shining out. I knew I'd find it in the end. It's chapter 7, it is in verse 37 or 38 instead of chapter 8. I was wondering why I was in the wrong chapter. And it says, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him, would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Of course, the context is this, that until Jesus has been resurrected and on the day of Pentecost, he had ascended back on high. And it says that when Jesus was ascended back on high, he received from the Father the promise of the Spirit. And this is what you have seen poured out, says the Apostle Peter. And the whole point is this. That Jesus is saying this, they're in this place, in the temple, it's the last, it's the great day, and here is the brilliance of these chandeliers. And then he is saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. You see, this is something that has happened with Jesus at this particular time. He wants to tell the people, look at me, I am the brilliance, the light. But the interesting thing is here, you see, that those who are following Jesus, it says that they will have the light of life. Now, it's an interesting expression, you see, because it's used, first of all, in chapter 1 and verse 4. It's talking about God who has created everything. And yet, here you have this picture where Jesus is described in this particular way. He says like this, in him was life. 
and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. In other words, here is Jesus, the light of this world. But the world doesn't conceive him, doesn't, doesn't got any true conception of who he is. The light is shining in the darkness. And the darkness doesn't comprehend it or doesn't understand it. But in him, in Jesus, there is life. And this life is the light of men. But the question you have to ask yourself is, well, what is Jesus actually talking about? What is the light of men? What is it that the light is giving? It is light that gives life, he says. It is this light. But you shall have the light of life. Now, I would suggest to you that what this light is, it's a true knowledge of God. It's a true knowledge of God. It is the light of life. This, says Jesus, is life eternal, isn't it? You know, that they might know you. Whom to know is life eternal. This means that you know Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You see, in the conflict with light and darkness in this particular chapter, Jesus, when he is speaking to these people, they're all confused. They don't know what to make of Jesus. And yet, Jesus is saying, look, there is this contrast that is going on. And even as I'm speaking to you now, I can see the contrast that is being made at this particular time. If you read on verses 13 to 20, but I don't want you to read all of that. But what he says is about himself. They're talking about him bearing witness about himself. And he is saying to them, you know, I could bear witness about myself, he says. But that isn't my purpose and that isn't my intention. But then he comes to verse 19. This is the only one because I can see the time has gone. Then he said to him, then they said to him rather, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. You see, see the light and darkness here? You know neither me nor my father, darkness. If you had known me, light, you would have known my father also. Light, shining. The darkness being dispelled in the true knowledge and understanding of who God is. And Jesus is saying, for all of my followers, for all of my disciples, for all of those who believe in me and trust in me, he says, this is what I give to them. I give to them eternal life, and this life is all bound up in this knowledge and understanding of who God is. He says, I've come like this. I've come into the world, the true light. The light that shines to remove the darkness to give this light. It'll come to an end now. Paul, when he was writing to the church in Corinth, you remember how he describes God as being the creator? And he describes God in this way that he was the creator of light. God, he says, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. This is a creation picture being drawn by the apostle. He who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shone in your hearts to our purpose to give to you the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, as we look at Jesus, what does he portray to us as the light of who God is and the light of this world? 
He is the reflector, the one who is revealing to us the very true nature of who God is. God who commanded the light to shine into the darkness has shone in your hearts to give to you the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. We know and understand something of it, don't we? You think of Jesus when he tabernacled in this world, isn't it? In 1 John chapter, uh, in, in John 1 verse 14, it? it says, he dwelt among us, or he tabernacled among us. The Old Testament tabernacle. Think for a moment of the Old Testament tabernacle. In the inauguration of the Old Testament tabernacle, the glory of God came down, the Shekinah glory, and it was shining out from the tabernacle. The people were amazed. God was there in that place, and the lights and the beams were shining out. And when Jesus was here, here was the glory of God. Here was God incarnate. Here was this God who had come into this body and into this world. Light was shining out through him. We beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, says John. They saw the light, the brilliance of it. And that still happens. This light that God commands to shine in our hearts, our minds and our understanding and our thinking becomes clearer and clearer as the days are going by and as the path is, as it were, being behind us and before us and as we're moving forward and onward and the celestial city is there and the glory is there. The light is shining. We're not walking in darkness. We're not in ignorance. We know exactly where we are going. We know the path. We know him who has gone before us. The light is there. The beacon is shining. And all we've got to do is to keep our eyes upon him. For in him was light. And in him was life. And that life was the light of men. He is the one who introduces us to God. He is the one who communicates to us the light of life. If we know Jesus, we have this light, don't we? And who can convince us otherwise? Who would like to try and tempt us to go back into the darkness? Who in their right mind would want to go back into the darkness, having come out into the light? It's much nicer than the light, isn't it? Hate it being in the dark, isn't it? The light shines. The glory of God, my friend, has been revealed to us. And shouldn't we be those who are fully convinced in our own hearts and minds of what Jesus is and who he is? And that light is shining. And so let us keep our eye upon him.